0: Hey y'all, sorry this episode's coming out a little bit later than normal. I've been a little bit busy, and unfortunately I just didn't have enough time to record. So, sorry, once again it's a little bit late, and let's get into the episode, shall we? Hello there, and welcome to the Amateur Historian Podcast. I'm your host Sean and in today's episode we're going to be discussing and addressing the Easter Rising and the Irish War of Independence. This episode will be a multi-part episode because of the vast amount of information and resources I was able to find and what we have to go over. I am really looking forward to this episode in particular because my heritage is Irish and we would always tell stories about our ancestors and where we came from. And I also really love Irish history, its culture, its language, its politics. I even did my senior college, senior thesis paper on Northern Ireland and how laws discriminating against Irish Catholics in Northern Ireland led to the actual Irish troubles, which will be a whole different episode. But alright, without further ado, let's form a new government and declare ourselves independent. All right, like we always do on the show, where will we be beginning? Where are we going to start? Where are we going to be talking about? What is going to be happening? Well, we're talking about Northern Ireland. And in case any of you don't watch international news or watch the news at all, which you really should, it's really important to see what's happening in the world, even if it's bad and sad, because you can actually find some positive things in the world, and it keeps you informed, and it's really important. But anyway, there were riots and protests that broke out in Northern Ireland, and these protests occurred from Monday the 29th or Tuesday, March 30th, till April 10th, roughly. But why? Why are these protests and riots happening, and why does it have any historical roots? Well, I'm hoping to give a little bit of a historical backdrop and some insight onto why these protests might be happening and why we might be seeing these tensions reemerge. No, we will not be talking about Brexit in this episode, but that did play a factor into the riots. Maybe, maybe not still up to debate but anyway all right so we need to start in the 1880s i can easily start way further back and go all the way back to the middle ages and the early wars between ireland and britain all the way back to 1169 i can go back even farther and talk about the raids and the viking battles and such but that's for a totally different episode so bring it back we're in the 1880s we see irish nationalists in the irish parliamentary party which is called the ipp which is how we'll be addressing them from now on. This political party, the IPP, had been demanding home rule or some type of self-government or some sort of autonomy from Great Britain. However, there were some fringe organizations such as Arthur, Griffiths, Sinn Féin, which instead argued for some form of Irish independence. And what form of independence and how far it would go would be later seen but they were a small minority at this time. And let me state this again. They were the small minority at the time. They were a fringe group. They were viewed as radical and being extreme. Shockingly, it wasn't a much higher percentage of the population, considering that the Irish and British had been for centuries fighting and had a very strong rivalry between the two people. Now remember, we also have to take into consideration things like the Irish potato famine, which had happened from 1845 to 1852 and the famine had killed millions of Ireland's people, and hostilities were high between many of the Irish peasants and their wealthy landowners, who were typically British. We can also see that they spoke English as their major language, and the primary language that was spoken, but Ireland and England were very different places. The issue of religion in particular divided them. England followed the Anglican religion and Protestants, while Ireland was very strongly Catholic. Now we fast forward a little bit and we get into 1912 and the British government struck a deal with the Irish party in the British parliament, the IPP allowing for home rule or some limited form of self-governance. The issue of home rule would end up becoming more divisive and a stronger issue than anyone realized. And no one realized how much of an impact it would have on world history. And it ties into conflicts. That are playing out to this day and no one would have been able to realize that all the way back then. Now the demand for home rule was eventually granted by the British government in 1912, which is 32 years later by the way, and it immediately was prompting a prolonged crisis within the United Kingdom as well as the Ulster Unionists, so there's a territory in Northern Ireland, which was known as Ulster, which is Northern Ireland today. And the Ulster unionists were a Protestant militia group that were loyal to the British crown and to remain part of Britain. And they formed an armed organization, which became known as the Ulster volunteers to resist this measure of devolution, which is in sense like resisting home rule and allowing Ireland to have autonomy or independence in turn nationalists formed their own military organization called the irish volunteers and battle lines are being drawn and violence is imminent with the real possibility of war on the horizon so we can actually see that the british parliament passed the third home rule act with an amending bill for the partition of ireland introduced by ulster unionists but the act's implementation was actually postponed by the outbreak of you guessed it, World War I in August 1914. You know, wars kind of tend to disrupt a lot of things, don't they? Things like laws, treaties, trade, travel, and many other different things. Now, the majority of nationalists within Ireland followed their IPP leaders and John Raymond's call to support Britain in the Allied War effort and provide Irish regiments for the new British Army, with the intention being to ensure the commencement of Home Rule after the war. But a significant majority of the Irish volunteers opposed Ireland's involvement in the war. The volunteer movement actually ended up splitting, and a majority of those that left the movement formed the National Volunteers under John Raymond. The remaining Irish Volunteers under Owen McNeill held that they would maintain their organization until Home Rule had been granted. Within this volunteer movement, another faction led by the Separatist Irish Republican Brotherhood began to prepare for a revolt against British rule. From the start of Home Rule, the various sides that would fight in the upcoming war were formed. For one, you had the Irish party, however, Irish home rule was deeply opposed by Northern Ireland, focused on the historically British-friendly Ulster, and a militant group called the Ulster Volunteers, who grew to fight against home rule. Irish nationalists responded by creating the Irish Volunteers, their own militia group. The most radical and militant of the Irish Volunteers formed their own group, the Irish Republican Army or the IRA. They were supported by a radical political party called Sinn Fein. So those are the basic combatants here. Are you starting to see now where some of the historical tensions are, where some of the history is of Northern Ireland, and why we saw these modern protests and riots break out? We can see that the foundations of those riots and the pieces are being placed this early for these modern events to occur. I mean, history, remember, doesn't just happen just because there are events that lead to different events. There are different situations and movements and people and religion and all of these other things that push towards a direction. So these are some of the building blocks that we're seeing for our modern day historical events. Alright, so how did this actually turn into a war? Well, in Dublin, the rising tide of militant Irish nationalism was manifested in the Easter Rising of 1916. In 1916, the British government had limited Irish autonomy due to World War I, you know, because wars tend to disrupt everything. So the IRA, yes, the Irish Republican Army is here. They've come onto the historical map and the historical record, and they are here. And yes, and they did a lot of things. But one of the first things they did was they launched an invasion, capturing Dublin and proclaiming Ireland independent. And this is remembered as the Easter Rising. Now, the British government reacted very quickly and they defeated the rebellion very quickly as well. But the British government's response was so violent and cruel that it pushed even the least radical Irish citizens towards Irish independence. Some of these actions included rushed executions, mass arrests, and martial law, which remained in effect all the way through the fall of 1916. And all of these actions fueled public resentment towards the British and they were among some of the factors that helped build up support for the rebels and the movement for Irish independence. As a result, the radical political party of Sinn Féin dominated the December 1918 election, replacing the Irish party in the British Parliament, and their first action was to declare an independent Republic of Ireland. All right, all right, all right. You want to know what actually happened. So the Easter Rising... We saw about 400 people died, and they were most exclusively confined to the city of Dublin, and it was put down within a week. And we already talked about how, you know, the execution of leaders, the rest of thousands of nationalists and activists galvanized support for Sinn Fein. So, overall, what Sinn Fein was able to do and what the IRA was able to do was even though it was effectively a military defeat. They were able to use it and gain a lot of propaganda material off of the event and it turned into a very stunning victory for them in the long run, especially for Irish Republicans. They gained considerable support following Britain's heavy-handed response to the uprising and the surge in Irish republicanism also attributed to the issues of military conscription. By now support for the British war effort was on the wane and Irish public opinion was shocked and outraged by some of the actions committed by the British troops, particularly the murder of Francis Sheehy Skeffington and the implementation of wartime martial law. Alright, secondly, the British, in the face of the crisis caused by the German Spring Offensive in April 1918, attempted to introduce conscription into Ireland combined with home rule outlined at the Irish Convention. Now, this conscription further alienated the Irish electorate, and mass demonstrations broke out during the conscription crisis of 1918. The crisis was because the British government extended conscription to Ireland. Now, more than 120,000 Irishmen had already volunteered to fight in World War I, and British policymakers hoped to raise another 30,000 roughly through compulsory military service. So, as you can guess, the introduction of conscription in Ireland created a significant backlash from the Irish people. The Catholic clergy and various political groups heavily opposed this. It also united Ireland's nationalist groups. Socialists, radical republicans, and moderates set aside their political differences to form an Irish anti-conscription committee and on April 23, 1918, the Anti-Conscription Committee coordinated the largest general strike in Ireland's history. This was followed by a series of massive anti-conscription rallies in several cities. By the time of the November 1918 election, alienation from British rule was widespread, and the political beneficiaries of this tumultuous period was Sinn Féin, like we mentioned earlier, how they took power in the November-December elections. Previously, a fringe group With unclear aims and goals, Sinn Féin emerged from the Easter Rising as an anti-conscription campaign group and became a very strong political party that was committed to an independent Irish Republic. Now, support for Sinn Féin grew very rapidly, and as Irish Republicans of various hues fell behind the party, in December they ended up winning 73 out of the 105 seats in the general elections eclipsing the Irish party, the IPP. Sinn Féin's MPs met in Dublin in January 1919, the new year, and set up the first Dáil Éireann, also known as the Irish Parliament. The Dáil immediately reaffirmed the Republic of 1916 and set up a government in opposition to the British administration at Dublin Castle. And by the way, just really quick, the fact that this party went from a very slim, small minority group to suddenly getting 70% of all the seats in a parliament in its first year is insane. Like that's a very powerful political group and they can basically control all the policies or anything. They have the supermajority; They don't need any other input. So the goals of the Irish people were laid out, they were voted on, and this was the direction the country and the party was going to go. How this would play out? Well, we're about to get into that right now. Now, in Dublin Castle, they declared the formation of an independent Ireland and proclaimed themselves the Dal Aaron, the Assembly of Ireland. And in April, the Dal Éireann elected Eamon Del Valera, who was a veteran of the Easter Rising as president of this republic, and another young man, a young republican by the name of Michael Collins, became its first finance minister. Through the middle of 1919, Sinn Fein agents ventured abroad to get international recognition and gain financial support and political support for their independence movement. In September 1919, London declared the Dal Ehren an illegal body, forcing it to meet less regularly and in secret locations. Now, on the same day as the reaffirmation of the Republic on January 19th, 1919, occurred, a small number of IRA members shot two Royal Irish Constabulary members that are also known as the IRC at Solohead in Tipperary. Also, please don't hate me too much. I'm terrible with names and I'm trying to make sure I get them right, so if my accent's off or if I'm saying them wrong, I'm really sorry. But all right, anyway, this incident began the Irish War of Independence, although the doll did not declare war until April of the same year, on that same day the Dáil was established, and two members of the IRA shot two members of the British friendly RIC. This moment is traditionally seen as the start of the Irish War of Independence, although, once again, war wasn't declared until April. Now towards the end of 1919, Cabinet considered the Government of Ireland bill, which was enacted in 1920 and provided four Ulster provinces to remain within the United Kingdom which was enacted in 1920 to provide for Ulster its provinces to remain within the United Kingdom. Whenever I say the, the cabinet is the British government. All right, so who, who was wanting to support these rascals and rebels in Ireland, and where was the international support coming from? Well, there was one group in particular that was called Clan Nargel became the largest single financier of both the Easter Rising and the Irish War of Independence. Now, Imperial Germany also aided this group by selling weapons and munitions that would be used in the uprising. Germany had hoped that by distracting Britain with the Irish uprising, they would be able to garner the upper hand in the war and effectively give Germany a victory on the Western Front. However, they failed to follow through with more support. Now, this clan also was involved Via McGarity and Casement in the abortive attempt to raise an Irish brigade, quote unquote, to fight against the British. In 1917, the Executive Committee of the Friends of Irish Freedom circulated a petition calling for the independence of Ireland throughout the United States and secured several hundred thousand signatures. President Wilson in turn, directed Secret Service agents to examine the membership and funding of this organization, and in May 1918, the Friends of Irish Freedom organized the Fourth Irish Race Convention, during which Dermot Lynch became National Secretary, holding the post until his return to Ireland in 1932. By 1920, there was a regular membership of over 100,000 members and 484 associated branches with an associate membership of 175,000 people. Now, During the Irish War of Independence, the Friends of Irish Freedom raised over $5 million in doll loans for the newly declared Irish Republic through the promotion of bond certificates five million dollars in 1920 is equivalent to the purchasing power today of 66 million two hundred nineteen thousand two hundred and fifty dollars now that is a return on investment i need to invest in that is anyone anyone buying still i hope it's for sale because that's a lot of money that they were able to fundraise and donate to this new fledgling government with this support volunteers began to attack british government property they carried out raids for arms and funds and they targeted and killed prominent members of the British administration. The first was Resident Magistrate John C. Milling, who was shot dead in Westport County, Mayo. No, not the thing that you put on your sandwiches or anything else. It's an actual county called Mayo. Anyway, he was killed for sending volunteers to prison for unlawful assembly and drilling. They were able to mimic the successful tactics at Boers. They were fast, violent, and many of them were without uniform. Although some Republican leaders, notably Amon, favored classic conventional warfare in order to legitimize the new republic in the eyes of the world, the more practically experienced Michael Collins and the broader IRA leadership opposed these tactics as they had led to the military debacle and defeat of 1916 during the Easter Rising. Others, notably Arthur Griffith, preferred a campaign of civil disobedience rather than an armed struggle. The violence used at first was deeply unpopular with the Irish people, and it would take a heavy-handed British response to popularize it among the Irish population. Now, think about it, there's still a very big sense of like restraint, like violence is breaking out. Do not get me wrong, there is violence happening and occurring, like we just saw someone be shot and killed. And we've seen many more people be shot and killed since 1916. But still a very significant portion of the population favored this idea of forming a government Completely separate from the British government and saying this is the legit government, not yours. And the fact that they only turn to such violence because they were given violence in return is just a very interesting concept. And in fact, when I was taking some of my counterterrorism classes in college, it was mentioned that terrorist organizations and groups use violence as a way to gain support for their movement and galvanize people. And then they slowly turn to like creating governments and administration to delegitimize the act the government that's currently in charge. So it's just really fascinating to see how these tactics are being used and how these different organizations gain political power. During the early part of the conflict, roughly from 1919 to the middle of 1920, there was relatively limited amounts of violence. Much of the nationalist campaign involved popular mobilization and the creation of a republic or a, quote, state within a state, in opposition to British rule. British journalist Robert Lind wrote in the Daily News in July 1920 that, quote, So far as the masses of people are concerned, the policy of the day is not active, but passive policy. Their policy is not so much to attack the government as to ignore it and to build up a new government by its side. You can make this argument that other countries took this tactic and they used it, especially in Eastern Europe during the Cold War. In particular, the country of Poland actually used this tactic to counter the communist regimes within Poland and they ended up creating a lot of their own government institutions that were underground, but they worked and countered the communist government and they were built side by side and it became a passive policy to just ignore the actual communist government. So we do see that this tactic does play out throughout history and it's really fascinating that we saw that this tactic was used in Ireland and then it moves all the way over and was also used in Poland. I just find it really fascinating. I think that's really cool. Alright, so, now we get into the main targets of the IRA, which was actually the mainly Catholic Irish Police Force, which was known as the Royal Irish Constabulary, or the IRC, which was the British government's eyes and ears in Ireland. Its members and the barracks they were in, specifically the more isolated ones, were very vulnerable, and they were a much-needed source of ammunition, arms, and other resources. And the IRC numbered around 9,700 men stationed in around 1,500 barracks throughout Ireland. A policy of ostracism of RIC men was announced by the Dahl. Now, these tactics proved successful in demoralizing the RIC force as the war went on. And as people turned their faces into a force increasingly comprised and associated with the repression of the British government. Now, the rates of recidivism now, the rates of resignation went up significantly. The rates in Ireland for recruitment for the RIC dropped significantly. And often, the RIC were forced to buying food at gunpoint at shops and other businesses because they refused to deal with the RIC. The fact that these troops were so demoralized and they have to hold people at gunpoint in order to actually buy their foods and basic goods just shows how effective the IRA and the doll was at demoralizing this group of police officers and then being able to turn that into propaganda and have their own population turn against them. It's really fascinating and it's incredible. And actually we see because of these tactics, some of the RIC's men started to, some of these RIC men started to cooperate with the IRA through fear or sympathy it's a combination of both and it depends on the case. They ended up supplying the organization with very valuable information. By contrast with the effectiveness of widespread... Bu- by contrast with the effectiveness of the widespread public boycott of the police, the military actions carried out by the IRA against the IRC at this time were very relatively limited. In 1919, 11 RIC men and four Dublin Metro Police officers were killed, and another 20 RIC were wounded. So, there were some other aspects to mass participation in the conflict, and these include things like strikes organized by workers in opposition to the British presence in Ireland. In Limerick, in April 1919, a general strike was called by the Limerick Trades and Labour Council as a protest against the declaration of a, quote, special military area, end quote, and also in opposition against the Defense of Realm Act, which covered most of Limerick City and part of the county. Special permits to be issued by the RIC would now be required to enter the city. The Trades Council's Special Strike Committee controlled the city for 14 days in an episode that was nicknamed the Limerick Soviet. So all these workers rose up and they took control of the city. And it's pretty funny that they call it the limerick Soviet because all the workers rose up and they took over the city. Like, come on, that's as like stereotypical political communist rhetoric you can get. So similarly, in May 1920, Dublin dockers refused to handle any wartime material and were soon joined by the Irish Transportation and General Workers Union, who banned railway drivers from carrying British forces. Train drivers had to be brought over from England after the drivers refused to carry British troops and wartime materials and supplies. The strike hampered British troop movements so badly that it was not until December 1920 when the strikes were called off, because the British government managed to bring this situation under control when they threatened to withhold grants from railway companies, which meant that workers would no longer have been getting paid, and that's when the strike ended. But the fact that the British government's war effort was so hampered because these Irish drivers were like, nope, we ain't driving you to where you want to go. You're Uber driver? Now nah, we ain't doing that. Like, that's pretty significant, and that's pretty funny and awesome. Now, violent attacks by the IRA also started to steadily increase, and by early 1920, they were attacking isolated RIC stations in rural areas, causing them to be abandoned as the police retreated to larger towns. The fact that the IRA's attacks were so effective and steadily increasing and targeting these little barracks in rural counties and areas and forcing them to be abandoned, it's they're forcing all the British control out. They're forcing the British government out and they're legitimizing the doll. And the way that this campaign was brought about is very strategically smart. You're removing what you deem as the illegitimate government and then you're replacing it with the government that you feel is legitimate and i just find it very fascinating it's incredible and it was very well thought out and done and that is actually how we're going to conclude today's episode on the irish civil war part one i hope you enjoyed today's episode it was really enjoyable for me to do this research and i'm really passionate about it and i hope that comes off in the podcast i got to learn a lot in particular it's cool to see how like public opinion swayed And we got to see that in the Revolutionary War episode that we covered. So it was cool to kind of see that dynamic. Also, thank you. I got my first five-star review. So thank you to my dad for writing me a review. Big shout out to him. And with that, if you all want to leave me a review, Apple Podcasts is the best place to do that. Or anywhere where you listen to your podcast. Like Spotify, Breaker, Google Podcast, you name it. We're there. And I just really, really appreciate all the reviews. Also want to address, in the Revolutionary War episode I said Plymouth instead of I said Flymouth instead of Plymouth. And I'm I know, I understand, I made an error, my Boston parents were very upset with me, and they're like, how dare you say it's Plymouth, because it's not Plymouth, it's Plymouth, and it was it was a whole thing. So I'm sorry. I'm that's why this episode was late. Is cause I was looking up the names of all these Irishmen and how to say them correctly. So I'm trying to make sure I pay really close attention to that. Because, like we said, facts and names are important. Alright, how can you reach me? Where where can you get in contact with me? Well, the best way to get in touch with me is my email that I've set up for this podcast. It's at the amateur historian podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sean underscore Kears or my current Instagram, which is running Olaf. I'm hoping to change that soon, but that's it. And Sean is spelled the Irish way and the correct way. And Kierce is K-I-E-R-C-E. You can also follow me on Twitch at twitch.tv amateurgaming36. You can come see me laugh, rage, talk about history and politics. It's, it's a good time. It's a lot of fun. There's been a little less rage lately. I'm trying to tone it down a little bit, but still, these Valorant games are killing me. And if you want to know more come back next week as we discuss the irish war of independence part two it's going to be out this next sunday because this episode came out late like i mentioned really early in the show so this episode will be out for part two next sunday i'm really looking forward to it i can't wait to teach you all something new i can't wait for this next episode i'm really excited and i can't wait to share it with you don't forget it's never too late to learn something new Thanks for listening, and I will see you all literally in about a week's time. Good day, good evening, and good night. We'll see you later.